Wisconsin and three other states have been added to Chicago's quarantine list. And we'll talk with Crane senior reporter Steve Daniels about ComEd and the far-reaching ramifications of disclosure in the company's bribery scandal. It had paid off close associates of the speaker, uh, lieutenants, people in his political operation. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Tuesday, July 28th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com slash SBL. I'm Cranes reporter A.D. Quigg, and you're listening to Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. All right, we're joined now by Crane senior reporter Steve Daniels here to talk about the latest with ComEd. I feel like every time we look up, there's sort of a new detail emerging with all the things with ComEd, but kind of set the table for us about what's happening right now. All of this has been percolating now for a year or so since the revelations that ComEd was central to this very active federal investigation of Speaker Madigan and political corruption in, in Springfield. And then it culminated on July 17th with the deal between ComEd and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, in which ComEd effectively pled guilty to a single count of bribery, but it was a, a deferred prosecution agreement in which that charge would be dismissed if ComEd continued to cooperate in the ongoing investigation of Speaker, Speaker Madigan and his political operation, and if they reformed their basically their MO, their lobbying approach, which has been so central to their financial success over the last decade. That has then led to, okay, so what does all of of this mean for the future of energy in Illinois, for the future of ComEd and its parent company, Exelon, which is a major corporation headquartered in Chicago, and some, some really big picture questions that I don't think we have all the answers to yet. Right, because at this point, just that disclosure kind of sends the dominoes falling in a lot of different directions. What's sort of the first layer of things that that we'll see impacted by that? Well, the first thing that's been impacted by that is uh, is the legislation or the the goal that Governor Pritzker set out in February. He wanted he wanted legislation enacted this year that would put the state of Illinois on a course to having a carbon free. Uh, power sector. He's not the only Democratic governor that's trying to or was trying to do that. I think the coronavirus pandemic has interrupted those efforts in lots of places, including here. But it was a major priority. And it, like any piece of energy legislation in the state of Illinois, whether you like it or not, Exelon and Commonwealth Edison being, Exelon being the largest power generator in the state, 
Commonwealth Edison being the largest utility uh, delivering electricity to homes and businesses in the state are integral to, to it, you know, again, whether you like it or not. The investigation, the admissions by ComEd that effectively it had paid off close associates of the speaker, uh, lieutenants, people in his political operation to win his support and approval for the ultimate enactment of highly controversial, a pair of highly controversial uh, major energy uh, laws, one in 2011 and, and one in 2016, that you know whole business model has now been exposed and presumably it will not certainly be able to be pursued anytime soon. So what happens to all of these big energy ideas, these big energy-related goals that you know have a lot of public support? Uh, there's a lot of public support for clean energy, for, for, for doing something about climate change. And, and the energy sector is a, a, a very important source of carbon emissions. That's the big picture. That's, that's what affects both Illinois and our world. Uh, and how all of that gets resolved and when all of that gets resolved is now uh, a lot harder to predict, given that this company that's so central to the industry is effectively uh, disgraced. And then fast forward to yesterday in Cook County Circuit Court, there was a class action suit filed on behalf of ratepayers. Where does that fit into all of this too? Yeah, the, well, where that fits in was in the agreement with federal prosecutors, Commonwealth Edison agreed to pay a $200 million fine. Uh, it, it, its parent, Exelon, will actually pay that. But that's money is going to the federal treasury, which, you know, can use all the money you can get, I suppose, these days, uh, running, you know, $860 billion deficits in a single month. But nonetheless, uh, what, what the, the question it raised was, okay, well, who are the actual victims of all of this? But the primary answer to that is ratepayers, the people who pay electric bills. And they, you know, they can choose their energy supplier, but they can't choose who delivers that power to them. That's ComEd at least in this part of the state. And uh, so that's a monopoly business. And, uh, you know, if you, as a ratepayer, overpaid for electricity because ComEd had used a corrupt means to win the laws that, that caused your electric rate, electricity rates to go up more than they otherwise would have, what are you owed? And that's what this class action suit is about. It's, you know, a suit on behalf of all ratepayers saying, uh, they, uh, ratepayers were overcharged something. The feds, the feds said it was uh, uh, that Comet had benefited to the tune of at least $150 million, but it's way more than that. And, you know, that's just kind of a threshold figure that they needed to, to uh, be able to charge the company. Um, so the lawsuit didn't seek to set that figure out right now, just said it's a lot. And, uh, and ComEd because it has stipulated to the facts that the U.S. Attorney's Office laid out in the deferred prosecution agreement, cannot, as a, as a way of defense, say, uh, we didn't do anything wrong. They've already admitted they've d- d- done wrong things, that they've done bad things. So it puts them in a very bad spot in terms of fighting this because, you know, they haven't commented yet to me, uh, but, you know, uh, it's... It's not that hard to presume that a defense might be, well, 
Um, yes, uh, we we got these laws through in uh, using using corrupt means, but the laws themselves actually benefited our customers, and they have made that case repeatedly in the past, particularly the formula rate law, the smart grid law that you know did in, improve or modernize the power grid, and has in fact. Uh, improved ComEd's reliability. It has, in fact, reduced the number of outages that happen every year, and it's quicker to restore the power when it does go out on average. So uh, I, sus- I suspect that will be their defense, but, um, you know, it seems to me like that's, that's the kind of case that's made to be settled um, rather than actually taken to a jury. So we have that piece of it. We have the political fallout and the part of the corruption scandal. There's the rate payer piece. There's the long-term energy prospects. What are the things that consumers should be keeping an eye on next as this story moves forward? The one thing that I think that has helped blunt the effect of all of this, um, which uh, might have been, I mean, it's, it's obviously been a major story, certainly for, for in political circles now for for 12 months um, plus, uh, but in terms of the average household and what they actually see on their electric bill, and ComEd has made this point over and over again, by and large, their rates over the last decade, really the period in which this, uh, this deferred prosecution agreement applies to, have been flat over that period of time. And the reason they have is even though ComEd's delivery charge, the charge to actually get the power to your house, has gone up quite a bit, uh, 35% or so in that period of time, the, the cost of the energy itself has, has plummeted. Uh, we, you know, we, the, the commodity prices for, for electricity, which are tied largely to natural gas, which are at historic lows due to a, a glut of supply, um, you know, it, it has has blunted that effect on consumers. So going forward, I think one of the keys is going to be, again, what happens with this larger elect, you know, energy legislation, if it ever gets off the ground. It's not going to happen this year. Uh, I think the governor would like for it to happen next year. But, you know, given all of the uncertainties in life and society right now, it's going to be it's going to be hard to undertake major initiatives until certainly the virus is under control and and there's some sense of normalcy. Uh, so when all of that happens, it will be hard to predict. And then the other big wild card is that comment parent Exelon, which owns uh, six nuclear stations in Illinois, and uh, that those nuclear plants in this part of Illinois deliver produce something like 40% of the electricity that we consume, um, you know, Exelon has continued to say those, those plants are not making enough money or at risk of losing money. They're, they're a little squirrely on that, but anyway, they, they are threatening to close some or all of them, uh, which would, which was the, the last time that they won a bailout in 2016 for two other plants that they threatened to close. Uh, you know, they, they, they won that legislation in large part because they convinced lawmakers that they actually were going to go forward and close them. I think they'll have to do more to convince lawmakers this time, given all of the suspicion uh, that the company faces. But that's the other big wild card. 
Lots of things to be watching, and we will all keep turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much for talking it through today, Steve. Sure. Thank you. Coming up, the industries that ship goods around the world say they aren't yet equipped to handle the challenges of shipping an eventual COVID-19 vaccine from the hands of drug makers to billions of people around the globe. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. The city of Chicago has added not only Wisconsin, but also Missouri, North Dakota, and Nebraska to the list of states covered by its emergency travel order. Restrictions on travelers from those states go into effect July 31st, and that brings the total number of states covered under the order to 22. At a press briefing Monday, Mayor Lightfoot said, What we're seeing is cities and towns, particularly across the South, through the Southwest, and onto California, really having significant struggles now because many of those communities took a very different approach to the one that Chicago took. We're also seeing an increase in states around us. Upon arriving in Chicago, people coming from the current list of states deemed coronavirus hotspots must spend 14 days in quarantine. However, as the Chicago Sun-Times first reported, enforcement for not complying is not occurring since no citations have been issued and quarantine is voluntary. The mayor was asked whether Indiana, where a statewide face mask mandate took effect Monday, might be next on the list. To that, she said, we're watching all of our neighbors very, very carefully, and we're going to be very prudent. We set out a set of standards. She continued, Indiana does not quite rise to that level, which is a good thing for residents of the Hoosier state, but we're watching all of our neighbors very carefully. The mayor said more states could be added as COVID cases continue to rise. Previously, the only Illinois Medical Center ranked among the 20 best nationwide Northwestern Memorial is now joined by Rush University Medical Center on U.S. News & World Report's latest list of top hospitals. Rush made its honor roll list debut at number 17, while Northwestern held the 10th spot for the second year in a row. Both academic medical centers are nationally ranked in 11 out of 16 specialties, including neurology, orthopedics, and geriatrics. While Rush improved in every specialty, its rise was also driven by recent methodology updates to make sure facilities aren't penalized for treating more complex patients. That, according to Dr. Paul Casey, who is acting chief medical officer at the near Westside Hospital. But not every component of the methodology works in Russia's favor. Casey said the reputational scores have been challenging to overcome since the measure primarily helps legacy programs like Mayo Clinic, which holds the top spot on the list. According to U.S. News, many ranked hospitals have very low reputational scores, but are strong clinical performers. Streeterville-based Northwestern has once again topped the list of best hospitals in Illinois. Rounding out the top five in the state are Rush University Medical Center at number two, the University of Chicago Medical Center at number three, Loyola University Medical Center at number four, and Advocate Christ Medical Center at number five. And it should be noted that the data used this year was collected prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. The methodology, which is revised every year, focuses on objective measures like risk-adjusted survival rates, patient volumes, and other quality metrics. Among updates this year are also new cardiac and stroke measures that aim to better determine the quality of hospital programs. More than 130 out of roughly 4,500 hospitals were nationally ranked in at least one specialty this year, according to U.S. News. 
Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management landed a $10 million donation from the Tonoto Foundation that has prompted the renaming of Kellogg Center for Family Enterprises. The gift is part of Northwestern's nearly $4 billion fundraising campaign. The Tonoto Foundation is a family foundation interested in providing education and scientific research to help Asian people, particularly in Indonesia, reach their full potential, according to a Northwestern Post. The center, which is focused on family businesses, has been renamed the John L. Ward Center for Family Enterprises. Ward is a clinical professor emeritus at Northwestern who was co-director of the center for about 20 years and one of the first scholars to put science behind the field of family medicine, the school said in the Post last week. Ward previously was on the Tonoto Foundation's board of advisors. Like other universities, Northwestern has been hit hard by the additional expense and lost revenue related to the COVID-19 pandemic. The school said it would increase its draw on its $11 billion endowment, among other measures, to shore up finances in the face of that financial pressure. In one final story for today, the industries that send goods around the world on ships, planes, and trucks admit that they aren't yet ready to handle the challenges of shipping an eventual COVID-19 vaccine from drug makers to reach billions of people. Already stretched thin by the pandemic, freight companies face problems ranging from shrinking capacity on container ships and cargo aircraft to simply being unsure as to when a vaccine could possibly arrive. Shippers have struggled for years to cut down on cumbersome paperwork and upgrade old technology that, unless dealt with pretty soon, will slow the relay race to transport fragile vials of medicine in unprecedented quantities. Making a vaccine quickly is challenge enough, but distributing one worldwide offers a host of other problems. And conflicting forces may work against the effort. For example, the infrastructure powering the global economy is scaling down for a protracted downturn, just as pharmaceutical companies need to scale up for the biggest and most consequential product launch in, you know, modern history. Neil Jones-Shaw, global head of air carrier relationships at San Francisco-based freight forwarder Flexport, said in a webinar this week with other logistics executives that Flexport is in early discussions with a number of pharmaceutical companies involved in vaccine manufacturing that are still unsure about what they're going to need. Shaw said, let's all be honest here. Vaccine supply chains are exponentially more complex than PPE supply chains. Going on to say that leaving PPE on a tarmac for a few days is one thing, but a similar move with vaccines would render the vaccine seems useless. So to that end, another capacity issue involves refrigeration. Health officials have said that the vaccine that eventually comes to market will likely need to be maintained at 2 to 8 degrees Celsius or in the neighborhood of 35 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit throughout the entire shipping process. And some newer technologies could even demand more advanced freezers that can keep them at a frigid minus 80 degrees Celsius and any deviation from that can ruin them. And among the big questions also involve fairness and accessibility. Exactly how will vaccines requiring such delicate and expensive transport possibly reach remote and impoverished areas where drones are now used to distribute pharmaceuticals? Such details are not yet sorted out, and shippers are aware of the need to get organized, but they are waiting on signals from the drug makers. There are more than 160 coronavirus vaccines in development, according to the World Health Organization, though only about 25 are currently in human studies. And the candidates furthest along in that are now launching late-stage trials and have ambitions of getting emergency use authorization from regulators before the year is up. And that could allow for limited availability of vaccines for healthcare workers and other other vulnerable groups. In the meantime, manufacturing deals are being settled and facilities are getting retrofitted to produce the still experimental vaccines, even at the risk that they fail in the clinic. 
Though the science underscoring the inoculation is still unproven and mass production remains a daunting task, top pharmaceutical executives speculate that distribution could pose the greatest challenge of all. Merck CEO Kenneth Fraser said in an interview on Bloomberg Television, quote, often people are talking about the scientific conundrum of coming forward with a vaccine that works, going on to say that a harder problem is about distribution and continuing, none of us are safe until all of us are safe. So it's got to be given broadly to humanity and saying we need a vaccine that we can make and distribute around the world. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks to our guest today, Steve Daniels. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.